Welcome back. Uh, You are listening to episode three of People Not Patients, the conversation about modern healthcare that speaks to people, not patients. I'm Jesse Langson-Gaston, and I am joined today by two new voices to speak on a very timely topic. What does the new government mean for healthcare in the UK? Here to discuss that with us is Ben Hallett, Managing Director of Public Policy Projects and former MP for Bath. Hi. And Daisy Thomas, Director and Public Affairs Lead for H&K Health in London. Hi, Jesse. Daisy, I wonder if you might give us a summary for why we're in the room together today. Sure. I mean, where to start? I feel like there's so much that we could cover and that we could talk about from Boris Johnson's first month as PM. The health announcements really have been coming thick and fast as Boris tries to cement his commitment to the nation's health. From tackling the misinformation around vaccines to Matt Hancock's passion project of digital technology. But why don't we start with the £350 million question (laughs) around NHS funding? So Ben, I'm really interested to hear from you what you think the news of this sort of new money really means for the NHS. Well, clearly the reason that it's been announced and health is such a key focus of all of the uh, different domestic policy agenda at uh, since Boris became prime minister is because there might be a general election over the next couple of months. Um, we don't know when. Uh, likely before the 31st of October something's going to be called, but if it doesn't, then obviously it'll run through until the final two years. But health and the NHS is clearly the most important issue at a domestic level when it comes to polling. So what Boris and the number 10 team have done is decided to... They've segues directly into that sort of policy agenda, which is really important. But from a funding point of view... You know, the money that has been announced is a clear distraction away from £350 million being printed on a bus, um, which hasn't materialised. And that was all due to a Brexit dividend, apparently, that would end up uh, giving the money over to the NHS as a result. I don't see that going, I don't see that happening in the next couple of months. So uh, we've got to see how he delivers on some of these commitments and uh, whether or not these commitments will actually last beyond his own premiership. Absolutely. And I know so many people have been saying that, you know, the £1.8 billion announced is really just a drop in the ocean of what's needed for the NHS. What's your view on that? Yeah, so the um, Health Foundation did actually say it would be a drop in the ocean because of the sheer volume of the backlog maintenance within hospitals. It's estimated at £6 billion. Now, I personally, and the evidence that we've seen shows that to be an underestimate, um, so there'll be even more um, requirement for capital funding. Uh, Later announcements in September, October, around the comprehensive spending review means that more money will be probably announced, but, you know, uh, let's hark back to what Theresa May said during the general election in 2017 when I got privatised um, by the people of Bath. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the magic money tree um, is currently growing, apparently. Who knew? You know, new fertiliser is being put on the roots and it's um, magically sprouting new cash. Who knew that? Um, so where's the money going to come from in order to pay for it? You know, if the economy ends up going um, down the down the pan... And we see a huge tanking as a result of a no-deal Brexit. Who's going to be uh, available in order to uh, spend on the NHS? You know, the service economy will end up running a mile from London. What's going to happen? And, and in terms of kind of more money and where the NHS is right now, 
do you really think more money equates to better outcomes for patients or do you think the NHS needs something else right now? Well I think there's a mixture of the two isn't it so there's um, investment in order to keep the light bulbs on and clearly the light bulbs are being turned off if not you know they can't even find money in order to literally replace the light bulbs at the moment Uh, and then there's also how do you end up um, reforming practices a lot of the money that is being announced for backlog maintenance continues the same problems we've had within the NHS you know let's rebuild a hospital or why wouldn't we want to invest say 1.8 billion in relation to primary care services to stop patients having to go into hospitals in the first place I mean there's plenty of different ways you can spend 1.8 billion pounds but 1.8 billion pounds for the NHS as soon as it's announced literally you can hear it already being spent before it's being announced so um drop in the ocean yes you sort of um hinted a little bit there around the prevention agenda what are your sort of thoughts around prevention and the fact that you know the nation's life expectancy is flatlining and the kind of the green paper that was sort of so lauded appeared to a little bit be buried kind of before Boris Johnson kind of came into BPM what are your views on that yeah the prevention agenda is incredibly political and uh, Matt Hancock clearly didn't want a lot of it being announced because he thought it would risk you know more libertarians within the current cabinet from getting rather upset with him and um, he knows what the health evidence is he knows what the economic evidence is if you end up spending more money on prevention and also reducing um Uh, money being spent or increased taxes on uh, things like sugary drinks and other um, obesity related um, sin items let's say Um, then you know you end up better health you end up with better health outcomes now clearly that is controversial to quite a large number uh, of people within the cabinet including the new trade secretary in particular but also probably the new chancellor as well so um, do I see more of that sort of syntax announcement no not under this current premiership because of the libertarian edge do I see further um, changes at a local level yes I absolutely do for whatever is left the rump of public health in this country and the public health industry and the public health um, clinicians in this country certainly will be pushing on an agenda of prevention rather than on um, uh, systematic care. I do wonder what that means for health communicators. Um, There's so much conversation right now and rightfully so um, some people call it self-care. We have a lot of work to do, I think, to recover what that term actually means. But you make the point about the prevention agenda. And I think when it comes to everyday people who are suffering from doctor and nurse shortages, for example, um, the other kinds of nuts and bolts, light bulb style things that we're really risking with the NHS. If you get your crystal ball out, Ben, <laughs> what do the next couple of months look like to you in the run-up to the 31st of October? I mean, Miss Meg, if you like. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think the number one issue is whether or not the government survives or not. And clearly, uh, the votes, I do not believe, stack up for the current government. So I suspect either a vote of no confidence in order to um, stop a no deal, now, even if Labour Brexiteers end up backing the government. It's um, highly unlikely that they will survive on that basis based on the numbers. Um, And then you've got party conference, which will come up in the next couple of uh, weeks too. Um, So Labour Party, Liberal Democrats and Conservatives will be setting out their stall in order to um, fight a general election. 
Um, the Brexit Party will end up increasing its own coverage, no doubt, as well, trying to snap up um, old Labour seats in the north in particular, in the Midlands, and then also the Liberal Democrats will be trying to fight out in the uh, south as well, so expect greater airwaves. But for the government, it will be political announcement after political announcement in order to deliver a manifesto. And if it means distraction technique away from Brexit, you hear an awful lot more about domestic policy over the next couple of weeks, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. So how do we sort of balance that with then the kind of the debate ongoing around everything we've heard around what Brexit might mean for health, whether it's sort of medicine shortages or, you know, NHS staff who come from outside the UK? You know, how, how, what does that balance look like? Well, we've seen what um, the uh, Times was uh, reporting over the Sunday papers in relation to leaked um, uh, leaked Brexit preparedness documents. Um, yes, they're out of date, um, but I think that basically creates a very good idea, a landscape for what potentially might happen. Um, I mean, I've got a mother who's just been diagnosed diabetic, for example. So, you know, um, 3.1 million diabetics in this country. You know, insulin has to be brought in within a certain um, period, even if there's a small change. And I'm not saying it's going to be turned off tomorrow, but even if there's a small delay at the border in relation to bringing insulin in, you know, the impact in relation to patients with diabetes is going to be um, astonishing. Plus, also, all it takes is for every diabetic to end up um, buying one more uh, insulin kit, then obviously you've ended up with a stockpiling issue. And in addition to that, we're running up till Christmas. So the obvious thing is when you speak to um, supply chain supply chain managers around the country, um, their stockpiles are absolutely full up already with Christmas stuff. Uh, that's you know, nature of the beast at this time of the year. So it's a bad time all round for patients if you expect that more stockpiles are going to be bought, uh, going to be created as a result of a no-deal Brexit. On other things around Brexit, you know, we're talking about potentially airdropping um, medicines into the UK. Uh, there will be generics shortages. Um, you know, most of the biosimilars are bought in from overseas. Um, vaccinations as well with the MMR uh, issues over this weekend could end up being impacted. We'll never know until actually the date that it actually happens. But I think you know the country is slightly more prepared. But also at the same time, you know, it is incredibly shocking to most patients now to see these sort of warnings um, coming up. And you know, are we prepared? Who knows until the day it comes. I'm afraid. What's the likelihood that we are headed to a No Deal Brexit? Under this Parliament, I think it is very unlikely we will end up with a no deal in the next two weeks, okay? And there's a lot of content, uh, a lot yeah. of um, Caveat away. caveats into that, I appreciate. <laughs> but in reality, I really do not see that the current parliament will allow that to happen. The maths just don't work out for this um, prime minister. However, if there's a general election, and I said this uh, on a number of occasions, the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party will clearly look to form some sort of coalition as a result. And same on the Remain parties as well. And it really will be a down-the-line general election, are you remain or are you leave? And um, you know, expect both of the, um, uh, the centre-ground Remain party and the Liberal Democrats and also the Brexit party to um, soak up a lot of votes. Um, so if that happens, then it'll either be Remain, second referendum, or it'll be leave on a hard deal. And I can't see that changing in this parliament, I can in the next. So do, do you feel like the whole kind of health tech agenda is much more of a personal sort of crusade, really, for Matt Hancock than something that is really needed at this time? Well, I think it's definitely needed, um, but it's not going to be electorally um, winning a ticket item. So, um, you know, for us in our um, policy wonkish space, 
tech is really important digitization is really important you know embracing artificial intelligence improves patient outcomes but you know, the time when an mp is interested in this in a political uh, literature piece or a manifesto is when you know the new uh, the, the candidate for colchester stands alongside the new mri scanner being introduced as a bit of tech that you can stand along and also win votes against you know that's the thing that we're interested in um, whereas, you know, we're interested in improving population health using proper analytics and identifying patients earlier through the pathway. That's quite a difficult thing to put on a piece of literature. So, um, you know, unfortunately for Matt, you know, it, it will have to get back to the, the um, get back to basics, as John Major said. Yes. And so, and so how does that kind of impact on the big announcements around kind of NHS X and NHS X AI? What does that mean for that organisation, given the kind of the focus for the next couple of months? So NHSX is really there at the behest of the Secretary of State. So the longevity of NHSX and NHSX AI will really be at who is going to be the next Secretary of State afterwards. If it survives that, then I think the um, organisation will continue on. Clearly, it doesn't have a mandate in law, so it really is a policy-related organisation rather than it is a statutory organisation. So again, that really resonates with who's going to be the Secretary of State and what their key priorities are going to be. Um, There's a lot of misinformation around NHSX and NHSX AI um, around, okay, so what's the difference between NHSX AI, and as a dyslexic, that's incredibly hard to say, (laughs) NHSX AI and also the digital innovation hubs and artificial intelligence centres that were announced under the industrial strategies and how do they all link up? To be honest with you, no one has the foggiest clue, um, which is really a shame, to be honest with you. Um, you know, Matt Gold, um, as the former Israeli ambassador, is really good at communicating and trying to get that message out there around the country, but he can only go so far until the point whereby the organisation is mandated and it has a um, set out in law set of priorities. So we won't really know until that's arranged. And I don't think Matt Hancock now, particularly with parliamentary arithmetic, uh, has any appetite to introduce new legislation in health so um, expect it to just sort of amble on sort of making policy announcements not necessarily statutory announcements I think that's really interesting one of the pieces around all of the digital innovation work that I find really fascinating is as you say it's communicating it in a way that the average person is going to understand now that communication strategy I don't think has really been there as you note Um, it's really hard to understand just where it sits number one but number two how does this actually relate to you know I think the Alexa partnership is probably one of the better examples because that was built for a particular population of people who you know maybe can't use their phones to to google normal questions like symptoms etc so that struck us as pretty useful and something that we talked about a lot Um, on the flip side of that I'm surprised we're not hearing more about piloting programs in specific NHS hospitals. I think, you know, Daisy, you mentioned this the other day. It's imitation over innovation. It's, you know, showing people that we are using their tax dollars in a really strategic way and that we're learning those lessons on a smaller scale before we're rolling them out widely. I guess I'd like to hear more about that. The pilot schemes are happening at at a very isolated level. What they're not very good at in the NHS, and they never have been, is communicating best practice and championing um, what they do around the country. You know, I own a, a magazine called Hospital Times, and the whole point of that is to actually start communicating out best practice around the country. You know, the NHS should be as part of its mandate doing that, and it doesn't do it at all. NHS improvement 
uh, creates a series of different pilot schemes. We all know what they are. There is a series of different clinical trials. Digital innovation hubs have been announced, but they're not allowed to publish it yet until later on because it's all embargoed. We know who has won those um, digital innovation hubs, but no one can know because it's a secret. Well, you know, come on, guys. This isn't how you end up operationalizing a organization, the second or third largest in the world outside of the Chinese State Army and the Indian Railways. You know, that isn't how you run an organization, and the NHS has to change its way on that. Otherwise, we'll never progress, and I think you've hit the nail on its head. And so, so generally, sort of outside the kind of the bigger political context, are policymakers looking for kind of partnerships around new solutions and sharing new best practices and innovations? Is that kind of the support they need from industry and advocacy groups? Uh, yes, it's absolutely necessary to bring in industry uh, in the conversation and also in the operational delivery as well. And I was um, working with an organisation which is really interested in supporting the national wound care um, strategy, for example. Um, and the, uh, the industrial strategy, the life sciences industrial strategy, gave a big call out to say the government and the NHS must do more to collaborate with industry in order to operationalise these. And um, this organisation that's a part of Wound Care, um, one of the biggest suppliers in the country, um, was told, I'm sorry, no, we don't want industry there to help work with us on this because um, we feel that this is the responsibility of the NHS. So what they're doing is cutting their noses off despite their faces because they want to institutionalise everything and not, A, bring in new resource and new funds and new um, uh, strategies and uh, help from outside, um, and also, they are now telling effectively patients that what the the main suppliers who have all of the equipment, etc., shouldn't be providing their expertise to the table to improve outcomes. Now, I find that a really odd sort of way to end up operationalizing. And then in other respects, the NHS is absolutely brilliant, and there's so much variation between the two. And you just think, how can you create an inconsistent organisation like this that speaks with one hand and does something with another hand? It just doesn't make any sense to me. So how do we make sure that, you know, the voice of the people and the people who are patients is represented and has a seat at the table? Mm, time and time again, have I sat policy tables and the last thing that someone talks about is, oh, what about the patient? It's a bit like digital, shoved at the end kind of thing. Like, well done. The whole point of actually coming up with health policy is to actually involve the patient at the very beginning of the journey, not the very end of the journey. Because funnily enough, if you don't, you're not going to be very effective. Um, now, how do you do that on a more formalised basis? Well, you know, clearly, as part of all NHS um, policies, it needs to be patient-tested or citizen-tested. And the other thing to say is that at a structural level, and this is a failure of the Lansley reforms, as it was um, outlined, not as it was set up to be, is the fact that this accountability structure from a local level hasn't been set up in the way that it should have been. So citizen health is important, and... Public health is now under local authority, but local authorities don't have the teeth in order to hold the NHS to account. It's very siloed still. So there needs to be a follow-on from what happened at a national level, I'm afraid to say, with what happened under Lansley, to properly do what Herbert Morrison was unable to do in, 19, in the 1940s against what Anaya Bevan set out, um, which is to properly localise health um, and care in this country. So do you think that that's kind of one that will be... Re kind of considered or you know rediscussed sort of later 
down the line once we kind of get over this sort of Brexit and election kind of period? Well, it absolutely should be. And, you know, um, my uh, business partner in the Policy Institute, which I run, is Stephen Dorrell. And he uh, says at every single national stage that there is currently no um, thinking being done around the reform of the healthcare sector. No policy discussion about creating um, a proper health and care system in this country. There's sort of a bit over here and a bit over here. Um, we've got a universal health care system in this country. Um, we should have a universal health care system for the 21st century in a single payer system. And no one is talking about it at the moment. Why? Because the intellectual capacity is swallowed up by this big um, cataclysm, which is Brexit. Imagine if that hadn't have happened, what could have been? And you know, those are the sort of discussions that should be happening. And if you had a majority in Parliament, you could quite easily start solving some of these things. Um, but at the moment, it's not going to happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen for the foreseeable either. I think that's a really interesting point. And I might wrap it together and just say, you know, when we were talking last week, we started thinking about if you were going to give one piece of advice to people on the edge of a pretty uncertain few months, um, let alone few weeks, what would you give? And and I have to say, Ben, I expected you to say something about, oh, well, you know, pay attention to the general election numbers or some kind of polling data, and that's not what you said. Uh, in advance of, of Boris coming out uh, over the weekend, what did you tell me on Friday was your piece of advice? Well, a piece of advice looks at what happened in Australia over their high peak flu season. And, you know, Australian flu is at epidemic proportions. And clearly, whatever happens over the other side of the world, and my brother and his wife are doctors over in New Zealand, they've had a high peak season this year, will impact over in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, we live in a global world. Vaccine, uh, viruses do transmit across geographies. So at some point we are, if there's a cold snap this winter, going to suffer severe um, flu uh, epidemic levels potentially. So my piece of advice really is go and get vaccinated for goodness sakes. Fascinating advice and really, really smart. Flu does not care about Brexit. Uh, what about Daisy? Uh, Daisy what, did, what would you say? I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, Brexit is obviously a massive distraction, but I think we mustn't let it allow us forget about all the other big important health issues like vaccination, but, you know, also life expectancy in this country and how we can make sure that it doesn't flatline even, even further, what we're going to do about the social care system in crisis, and just generally the strain on the NHS system. And as you were saying, Ben, how do we reform and transform what the healthcare system looks like in this country? There's some great opportunities ahead as well, by the way. So I know this sounds like a really negative conversation, <laughs> given the views of what um, I, we've all campaigned for potentially over the years. But, you know, catalysts can create change. And unless you end up um, having, you know, seismic shifts in British politics, things don't happen. You know, you can harp back to the days of the, um, of the changes in the uh, Corn Laws to see what ended up happening for the remainder of the 19th century, etc. And, you know, if we can end up embracing change and embracing opportunity as well, then potentially, you know, patients and also citizens end up improving as well. Potentially that could be the catalyst for, you know, putting prevention at the beginning, not at the end of the healthcare service. I think that's exactly where I'd go with it. I think it's going to be a particularly tricky time. We don't want to get too distracted, but that whole line between scaremongering and genuinely useful information is going to be a really important one to draw. I think particularly as communicators, it's hard not to think with that hat on, but we do have a role to play in keeping people from panicking, but also preparing them. Um, and I think looking at the materials that the government is putting forward for just 
everyday people as, you know, kind of with your business hat on, if you will, and going, okay, what's our role here? How can we help? What is the most useful thing we can put forward without adding additional chaos into the situation? I would have everybody looking at the kinds of things that they're putting out over the next six months with that lens. Yeah, information is power, and it's not rocket science, is it, when it comes to communication? It's about explaining facts, and they are facts when it comes to vaccinations. If you get a vaccine, you are less likely to end up getting the condition that the vaccine is designed for. And yet, yeah, we live in a world of fake news, which had previously existed, by the way, but not necessarily had the platform that was necess- uh, that, that exists today, where now you, know, you can go on Google and you can find someone who said that because of an MMR vaccination, they ended up getting you know, a condition, which is complete nonsense, but someone will believe it. And therefore, trust in the system ends up being um, damaged as a result. And you know, whether or not that's Brexit or whether or not that's vaccinations, the same issue applies. The scaremongering could be reality, but people consider it scaremongering because they are more quizzical and less um, deferential towards the facts that are being produced. And then what are the outcomes as a result? You know, oh, I don't believe that insulin will end up being, um, uh, in, in, insulin um, being brought into the country will be affected as a result of Brexit. Well, that's a belief. It's not a fact. And there is a big difference between the two. And as communicators, we've all got a responsibility to explain better uh, the differences between the two. And they are very nuanced. I appreciate it's difficult, but it has to be done. That is a perfectly strong place for us to close today. I have to say this was fascinating. Thank you so much to both of you uh, for joining us. Please remember to join us next time. We'll be speaking with author Lydia Slaby. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you.